Let's just bow our hearts, shall we, in a moment of prayer together. Father in heaven, we have joy in our hearts tonight as we realize anew and afresh that Jesus Christ is the answer to every need of our life. We pray, Lord, that we will recognize him as the one who is the all-sufficient one, the one who came to give life and to give it more abundantly. We pray that our allegiance will be to him. And we pray that tonight as we, we view the, the events of these days in the light of your word, we pray that Jesus Christ will receive the glory and that we will be those that will be informed in a world of ignorance. We pray that Jesus Christ will control our lives and give us words to speak even as we share with others the message of tonight. We'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. It's good to see you here. And may I suggest to you that um, if some of you are visiting here tonight, we're not going to take time because of the time factor uh, to pass out visitors' packets. But Mr. Peebles will be at the door. And if you're interested in knowing a little bit more about the study program here at Valley Church and uh, that which we do in the way of study, Bible studies and so on, um, then he'll give you one of those packets at the door as you leave tonight, if you wish. And uh, we hope that you'll take advantage of that. We generally uh, take time to pass those out, but we have a lot to do tonight and uh, have no, no way of knowing how we're going to get it done anyway. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, we're going to just move right into it and uh, trust the Lord to direct us and lead us. Now, I very seldom take a, an issue and preach to it. I generally just teach the Word of God verse by verse through Scripture. And um, it's very, very seldom that I'll just take an issue and say, let's talk about this because this is so current. But there's been so much that has been asked and so much that has been said, so many questions being asked by so many different people in reference to this whole matter of the People's Temple and Jim Jones and how such a thing could happen. And, uh, of course, since Sunday, uh, we have been even further shocked by the events that took place in San Francisco. And uh, we, just, uh, we just really need to look at the Scripture, and we could almost, uh, almost pick at random a book of Scripture and find something in each book that deals with this particular concept. And we're, we can't do that tonight. It would take uh, to study the doctrine of the depravity of man... Uh, would take some doing. And uh, so we're not going to do that. In fact, we're going to assume a little bit um, on the part of at least most of you um, because we're not going to do a great deal of background concerning the fall of man and the depravity of man and those things that relate to this subject. But rather, we're primarily going to focus upon one chapter of Scripture that when I, when I was thinking in terms of the events that were happening as they unfolded, I just uh, went to my Bible and turned to this passage, and I read through it and reminded myself of the meaning of the Greek words there and uh, got a profile in my mind of what is to be expected in the last days. And uh, as I saw that thing unfold, as I saw it develop, I just one time after another went back to this passage and said, my goodness, this is true, this is true, this is true. And as you'll see tonight... There is virtually nothing that that chapter says but what it applies to this situation as we have faced it in these days. And it's been pretty close to home 
being just uh, 45, 50 miles up the coast where so many of these people were from. Now, on Saturday evening, November 18, 1978, scattered and unconfirmed reports came that Senator Ryan and his party of newsmen and colleagues had been attacked in Jonestown, Guyana. I myself was just going to bed about the time the reports started coming in and uh, didn't really know what the next morning would hold. But uh, all, it was all too real the next morning when the reports were confirmed that indeed there had been the murder of Senator Ryan and uh, some of the newsmen. And during that next week, as you know, the headlines flashed the grim details. Not only that Senator Ryan and his group were dead, but also over 900 Jonestown residents had committed mass suicide directed by their leader, Reverend Jim Jones. Now for you that are living in this area, I'm sure I don't have to elaborate on a lot of the details. All of us are too painfully aware of exactly what did take place, only to be followed by another tragedy as the mayor of San Francisco and all of the uh, and uh, one of the supervisors were shot in the city hall, allegedly by Dan White, a recently resigned supervisor who wanted his job back. And all of this seems so strange. Uh, to me, you know, I couldn't help but think of the song that says, in times like these, we need a savior. In times like these, we need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure that your anchor is clinging to the rock. And I believe that in these days, we need an anchor. And we also, as that, another verse of that same little song says, which I've quoted so poorly just now, another verse says, in times like these, we need a Bible. And I was aware again and again of the fact that the Word of God does indeed have answers to our need. In times like these, it behooves the believer in Christ to have answers ready to give to the person that asks. Scripture commands us to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh concerning the hope that is in us with meekness and with fear. And we need to be aware of the fact that people today, perhaps as never before in our lifetime, are asking, why? How could such a thing happen? What in the world is going on? What would cause a seemingly rational human being to commit a double murder? What would cause a man who seemed to be a civic leader and respected member of the community to commit violent and immoral acts that are almost beyond comprehension and then lead the people that, uh, he, that had trusted him and followed him to lead them into a suicide pact? Does the Word of God indeed have answers for times like this? All the way through the Scripture, we have the doctrine of depravity, the fact that man fell into sin, and that man is unalterably sinful until Jesus Christ transforms him and gives him new life. In Jeremiah 17, 9, we read that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And here's the question, who can know it? Isn't that interesting? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the world today is saying, who can understand how such a thing could happen? But the next verse in that text says, I, the Lord, search, or literally in the Hebrew, tunnel through the heart. I put to the test the conscience. God understands the heart of men. Man looks on the outward appearance. He sees what the eye can behold. And he draws his conclusions on the basis of that. But God himself sees the heart of man. 
And God says that by nature we are children of wrath. That's what we are by nature. That by nature our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so if we're, we're to understand life from God's point of view, it behooves us to know God's Word. We must know this book. And so tonight, we want to skim through a chapter of the New Testament and seek to find the answers. But before we do, there are two passages of Scripture that I want to look at to develop one particular thought that I hope you'll get if you don't get anything else tonight. And it's simply this. First of all, every man who is not committed to Jesus Christ as Lord and Master is, according to the Word of God, a slave to Satan. And Satan can manipulate that man to do whatever he wishes. We know that from Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. And you want to turn to that and just make sure that you have that in your kit bag as you seek to share with others the condition of men that would cause such a tragedy. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Know ye not, it's one of those things that you should know. Don't you know that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, slaves to obey, his slaves ye are whom ye obey. And you've only got two options. Whether of sin unto death, that is the option of choosing to serve Satan, or of obedience unto righteousness, that is the option of serving God. And you are either a slave of God tonight in Christ Jesus, or you are a slave to Satan. It's a choice, a moral choice, a spiritual choice that every man must make. If you make the wrong choice, you become prey to Satan. Now with that, understand a principle. Satan can manipulate you as to how you act and what you do and it often suits his purpose to make you real good. But you're like a puppet on a string and Satan says do a a lot of good deeds, get a good reputation and he does all of this. But at a moment in time Satan decides that he's going to pull the string And he's going to make you do something contrary. Because Satan is the author of confusion. And therefore, in the midst of all the doing good, in the midst of all of the good works and all of the good deeds and all of the charitable things, Satan suddenly decides, now it would suit my purpose for this same individual who has made such a name for himself to suddenly become evil. And all he does is pull the string. And of course, the psychologists and psychiatrists would like to call it temporary insanity. Or they'd like to say, well, the fellow flipped his lid, or a lot of other things. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture never refers to things like that. It always throws to us these two alternatives. That if Jesus Christ does not control the life of the individual, then Satan will. And Satan is a deceiver. And so therefore, another passage that you put with that is 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13. Now, if you'll look at that with me, 2 Corinthians eleven 13, you'll find just how Satan uses angels of light, or is an angel of light, 
masquerading as an angel of light. Notice verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. But the word transforming is really a poor translation because the word is the word to masquerade. Masquerading as the, the apostles of Christ. Verse 14. And don't be surprised at that. For Satan himself is transformed, masquerading as an angel of light. For therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed or masquerade as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Don't you dare be surprised when the best man in town who has rejected Jesus Christ suddenly becomes the worst man in town. Because he, that's what he is by nature. But Satan puts on a veneer. He puts on a front. He puts on a show. And that word that we used, uh, the word masquerade, simply means to demonstrate on the outside what is not true of the inner nature. There's another word that means to show on the outside what is true of the inner nature. But this word means to show on the outside that which is phony, that which is fake, that which is not real. And we can anticipate that more and more we are going to see the veneer brought off and Satan allowing people to show their true colors. And the Bible tells us that it is a preparation for a day where not 1,000 people, not 20,000 people or 200,000 people, but literally millions of people will follow a man who comes on the scene and does good for three and a half years, brings peace to the world, and then turns to be worse than Jim Jones. The beast and the false prophet, the political and ecclesiastical combination of these men that will be found in that last days will do things that will make Jonestown look like a Sunday school picnic. And the Bible has said that this is true. And what happens is that there are certain people that Satan chooses to use to prepare the world so that it becomes shockproof when such a man comes on the scene. Because he's coming. But I got news for you, somebody else is coming first. And those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior are going to be gone. Now you think that the mass suicides in Jonestown shook the world up. Can you imagine what happens when all of the believers are gone? It's going to happen. And they'll recover from it. And they will immediately begin to look for someone to pull it all back together. And who are they going to find? Well, po most popularly, he's called Antichrist. I don't like that name because it doesn't fully describe him. The better term is the man of sin. He will be the epitome of the depravity man in human form. He will be the epitome of all that Satan is in all of his evil. And it will be in human form. And so don't be shocked by events like this. We must recognize they're going to be happening with increasing intensity so that the world will become shockproof, preparing for Antichrist. Now, that's a whole lot to throw on you. But I want to say one thing by way of application before we get into this, this text and a little background and some parallels. If you tonight 
by a deliberate choice of your will, choose not to be the slave of Jesus Christ under his domination and control and living in accordance with his word, then you automatically choose to become Satan's puppet. And you'll cruise along for a little while, just going along, doing good things, and you think, oh, everything's fine. And some, one day, you're going to have an impulse. And Satan will cause you to do whatever best suits his purpose. Because that's what he's doing now. And therefore, I think it's dangerous for us, even as believers in Christ, to resist the voice of God's Holy Spirit when God calls for obedience from us. Now, mind you, he's not a cruel taskmaster. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. He's not a hard taskmaster. But I'll tell you something. There is no greater joy than as the Apostle Paul said, simply to be a captive of Jesus Christ. Simply to yield up my life to him and be his slave. He'll never let us down. Now, it's true that at certain times in man's history... The expression of man's depravity is more pronounced by a greater number of people for a period of time. It's also true that as we approach the end of the age, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be an acceleration of this depravity. And God allows these things to take place as a part of the course of the age. Satan is allowed the power to be the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the hearts of the children of disobedience. And therefore Satan it can accelerate his activity from time to time. But there is still a restraining force in the world today. That restraining force is the Holy Spirit working through the church. And as the Holy Spirit, in Second Thessalonians, speaks of this, the fact that the Holy Spirit indeed is that restrainer as he works in the church today. Also, the church is to be salt, a preservative. It's to be light to penetrate the darkness. And inasmuch as the church of Jesus Christ occupies itself with its responsibility of penetrating the society, the, the evil that is ultimately going to come will be pushed back. But it, the flood tides will be, it's like the boy in the dike uh, with his finger in the dike uh, of Holland fame. There's a sense in which we can hold back the forces of darkness to a degree. But when you remove the church... Everything's going to break loose. If I could use the term very literally, all hell will break loose. Because the forces of darkness and the forces of hell will break loose indeed in that day. And therefore the church has its finger in the dike. But you see, we have to maintain that stance of being effective in the world. Otherwise, we will be like a lot of other places in the world have become filled with pagan darkness and very little witness for Jesus Christ. And so keep that in mind. And now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That was a long introduction. <clears throat> That's all right. You don't have anything to do tonight, do you? All right. I'm going to give you... I'm going to do two things. I'm going to share with you what the passage says, give you an outline of it, 
We're going to run through it rather rapidly, all right? If you really want to get it all down, I guess you have to get the tape because, uh, and play it slow motion because I'm going, to, I'm going to move. With it, as I give characteristic by characteristic, I'm going to read. I don't like to read from the pulpit, but I'm going to read. I'm going to read some of the accounts from the newspaper, just little brief paragraphs here and there, to, to just illustrate how clearly this whole thing is a part of what Paul said to Timothy here. Now, in order to do that, let me first of all, uh, for two reasons, for you that maybe didn't read much about it, I don't think there are too many of those here, but also for people who may get this tape, I want to give you just a little profile, all right? Have it in your hands, in your minds. The seeds of this cult lie in the man who led the People's Temple, the Reverend Jim Jones. This man, raised in a rural town in Indiana, was first introduced to biblical study in the Church of the Nazarene. He later became a Pentecostal. In 1953, he began a small interdenominational church in Indianapolis as an unordained minister. It was 1961 when he gained a reputation for being outspoken in advocating civil rights. In the early 1960s, he worked as a missionary in Brazil. It was during this time that he made his first visit to Ghana. People's Temple began with his return in 1963. Jones was ordained in 1964 by the Disciples of Christ. A year later, he moved his temple to Ukiah, about 100 miles north of San Francisco. His reason was that according to Esquire magazine article, Ukiah was one of the nine safest areas in California in the event of a nuclear holocaust. The temple in San Francisco was purchased in 1971, as well as a second church being commenced in Los Angeles. In 1973, a group was sent to inspect Guiana. In 1974, a lease for the property was obtained from the government of Guiana. In 1975, Jones used his political muscle in the elections in San Francisco, a deed that earned him the reward of appointment to the Office of San Francisco Housing Authority granted by Mayor George Moscone in 1976. A year later, reports began to surface in the form of testimonies of ex-members who spoke of the beatings administered by Jones in the People's Temple. Soon after, a radio message from Guyana carried to San Francisco the resignation of the never-to-return Jones. Now, Paul is writing in 2 Timothy to his son in the faith, Timothy. It's his last letter. He soon die. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, The time of my departure is at hand. Nero would have Paul beheaded on the Ostian Way west of Rome in just a short time after he'd written this letter. He wrote to encourage Timothy the first two chapters, but also to warn him and to warn us of the characteristics of the last days, which can be seen with varying intensity at various periods of human history, so that we'll be watchful and alert and wake and ready to witness for Jesus Christ. Beginning in chapter 3, though, he unfolds some amazing things. And we want to just lay out for you a little outline. May I say to you that the word but in Scripture is the corner word of Scripture. Every time you see but, you turn a corner. And uh, there actually are, uh, your diagram would look something like this if we were to look at it, because we start with the first, nine, or first eight verses, and uh, then we turn a corner with a but. And then at each corner we have another but in the passage. So you'll be able to detect that very clearly. All right? Verses 1 through 8, we have the status quo. That's Latin for the mess we's in. 
And uh, then you have the judgment. The judgment in verse 9. And then after the judgment, verses 10 through 12, we have Paul's example. In contrast to the status quo, to the things that are happening among men. And then we have another but, and we see what to expect next. That's not uh, very good news. What to expect. And then finally, we have the fact that Scripture is the answer. All Scriptures, God breathed and profitable and so on. All right, so this is the little outline that you can find here in this chapter. Very important chapter of Scripture, and most of us know the end part, but don't know the setting. And that's tragic, because it's the setting that would have been so helpful to you last week when people are asking all these questions. You could say, oh yeah, God's Word talks right about that, and start reading 2 Timothy 3. You end up with a message of salvation and the message of the, the effect of Scripture as a result of uh, the, the times in which we live. The Scripture that is God-breathed and is profitable. And so therefore, we have that little, that little bit of an outline. Now, it begins with the words, this know. And to save time, we flipped them up here for you so that you'd be able to follow along. I'm not going to take time to do much writing, simply because we're going to move like a house of fire, all right? Make sure we can see that there. All right, it starts with this no, gnosko, experiential knowledge. And it says no experientially. All you have to do to do that is look around. Right now, nobody has to tell us to know, because we're going to know it by reading the newspapers in these days. The Christian is not to speculate. He's to know. I guess that's one of the things that grieve me as much as anything else, to have some of my faithful people, you know, that we've been trying to teach for the last seven years, come up and say, what's going on, you know? Because you ought to know that, see? The Word of God tells you. You ought to know your Bibles. And you ought to be able to tell us what's going on. When someone asks that, you should be ready with an answer. And that's why we called this meeting tonight, all right? So you'd have an answer. Present active imperative, keep on constantly knowing. The world may be in the dark, but don't you as a Christian be in the dark. Then it says in the last days. Now the Jews divided all time into two times. This present age and the age to come. And they divided it with, a, with what they called the day of the Lord, where God would intervene in the affairs of men. The present age was an evil age. The future age was a kingdom age. We would talk about heaven in the New Testament, but they talked, of course, about the kingdom that would come to earth, which is yet to come. But the time in between was the day of the Lord, God intervening. And in the New Testament, over and over again, Paul refers to the beginning of this time, that is, the events preceding the day of the Lord, as being the last days. The last days. And so it says here, in the last days. I know, uh, this know also that in the last days something's going to happen. Well, what's going to happen is there's going to be kalpas. There's going to be difficult days, difficult times. The word... It means to be hard to deal with. The same word was used by Plutarch to describe what we would call uh, a, 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 uh, an ugly wound. Or uh, uh, if a person, uh, say, had received a, a, uh, a gunshot wound, as an example, and it was obvious that there was nothing you could do, it would be a hard-to-deal-with wound. 
And so Plutarch used that in that particular way. Astronomers used to use it to speak of the threatening conjunction of heavenly bodies. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, the word was used to describe the two maniacs of the Gadarenes. It said they were exceeding fierce. Same word. It's the idea of ferocity, the idea of a threat, the idea of a menace. There are going to be menacing, threatening days that will be upon us. The word he uses for time here is not the word chronos, which speaks of chronological time, but rather the word that uh, is kairos, which, which speaks of a time that is marked out by special circumstances. It is the opportune time or the time in keeping with the circumstances. And then it says they shall come or literally set in. Guy King says of this little, uh, these phrases here at the beginning that this is an outline of the deplorable character that will become outstandingly common amongst men at that time. Yet, he says, these sad characteristics are, alas, not the exclusive property of that last period, for in different ways and degrees they have appeared and will appear through the years. And so therefore, these are difficult times. Then the Apostle Paul goes into a description of what these times consist of. Now right off the bat, I've got to take care of a little uh, word problem. Because you see the beginning of this word, the, the word phila, comes from the root phileo. Phileo is a word that is very important in the New Testament. And you have to understand phileo in order to understand this text because it's used five times along with other words. And it always means basically the same thing. The word phileo was the Greek word for friendship. But it was more than friendship. One uh, writer in classical Greek had a little statement that said this in Greek. Uh, some of you that have been in Greek class, you'll recognize this because uh, we use it as one of our exercises. But it says, a phileo, a close friend, is another himself. That is, they are centered so much on the same thing. They are so close together that it's like a duplicate person. And it's this kind of relationship that, of course, you need to have in, uh, with the people in the church and you need to have with your family and you need to have with your friends and so on, building your life around the same interests. That's what fellowship is in the church of Jesus Christ, is, filling, is, is, is just centering ourselves in the same interests. If we all love the Word of God, then we have phileo in that regard. There are other words for love, but this, lo this word is one of the most important words because it indicates, and get this now, it indicates what your center is. If you have phileo love in terms of sports, you both like football, then that's one thing. That means you center at least to some degree around sports, around football, or around baseball, or something else. And it speaks in terms of where the center of your interest lies at that moment. And there are degrees of that. In this text... There are all kinds of things that are the center that are wrong. And every one of them were characteristic of Jim Jones. The word for men here is anthropos, which is a generic term speaking of mankind. And then the word philatoi is the word that really is the key to the whole problem. Atoi or atas, in this case, in the root, is the word that means self, yourself. You center your life in yourself. Phileo love is that which appeals 
that which gives pleasure, that which becomes the center of your life. And men want to center their lives around themselves rather than God. And Satan from the beginning, and you can trace it through Scripture, he has lied about one very basic thing that the Scripture calls the lie and says that people in the last days are going to believe the lie. Do you know what the lie is? Don't have time tonight to show you all the texts. I could take an hour and do it if you've got the time. But I'll tell you something. It's simply this. You can make it independent of God. You don't need Him. And that is the lie. And you see, loving self is basically where we say, all right, I'm going to do this without God. And we bow down and worship ourselves. A man wrapped up in himself makes a real small package. Now you've heard on the news over and over again, Jones was an egomaniac. People called him father. They called him dad. They even referred to him as the only God. A former associate minister by the name of Case said of Jones, Jim was no longer leading people to Jesus, but leading them to himself. This was said regarding his work in Ukiah in the late 1960s. And I'm quoting most of these. I won't take time to say quote, unquote, all of that. In San Francisco, Jones peddled pictures of himself, which yielded $500 to $800 daily and other temple mementos. A former follower says that Jones had the habit of asking members if they loved him or not. If they replied disfavorably, he would send someone to their home later to find out why. He encouraged the idea that to resist or go against him was to go against God. Yet these indictments are significant when we see that Jones used to take a Bible, which he brand, branded the black book, and throw it on the ground during the services, crying, Too many people are looking at this instead of looking at me. You know, if I ever do that, I hope you string me up from the nearest tree. I'm not even worthy of having a trial at a time like that. Believe me, this man was a man who centered his life in himself. And it says in the newspaper account, it was then that people began to praise him. Jones once made sexual advances toward a member. When this man asked Jones why it was necessary to have sex both with male and female, Jones replied, you have to. It focuses their interest on you. Lover of self. Grace Stone, of course, who you've heard a lot about, there was apparent mother of that boy that Jones was keeping, one of the main reasons that he went to Guyana in the first place, says that Jones had visions of himself as God incarnate, his mistreatment of children, his role as a master manipulator who kept his followers off balance by alternatingly praising and humiliating them. She says Jones indoctrinated members of his flock by claiming he was a reincarnation of Lenin, Buddha, and Christ, and as such had the authority to punish sinners. Ready for the next word? Here's again, phileo, see? But this time it's with the word argyros, which means silver. Same word is translated in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 10, where it says the love of money. Same word. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, we don't have to give you much of an explanation of what love of money is. I think you know. But let me just mention, Jones' economics were staggering. While he was having a show of generosity, there was a lot of money being hoarded. His followers have said that he lived high while people were virtual slaves. And not only that, he required the donation of one-fourth of their income to the temple. 
And he said that this would keep them from the lures of the outside life. Near the temple building in Guyana, $500,000 in gold bullion, $500,000 in cash was recovered. Former member Edward Mueller recalls that Jones once mused about the ease of his affluent life, saying, Just look at my hands. They're not dirty, while everybody else is working in the fields, you see. And then another member said that he once stated, Everything I touch turns to money. I'd have been a millionaire if I'd not, if I'd not been called in this way. Third word, boasters. Alazan comes from the word ale, which means to wander. And it was an empty pretender. It was used to be described originally, it was used to describe the wandering quack doctor who claimed cures that he couldn't produce. Claiming what he did not possess became the meaning of the word over a period of time. It was the kind of person who would brag about what he could do and what he could accomplish. It was like a medicine man or a man in the medicine shows of the Old West where they would uh, hold up their bottle and, uh, uh, and they would say, my tonic will cure uh, dyspepsia and uh, ulcers and kidney stones, and they'd name all this stuff. They could do it a whole lot better than I could. I haven't memorized their spiel, you know. And they'd rattle this off, and people would pay a dollar a bottle to buy this stuff, which was nothing more than colored water. It couldn't cure anything, but it gave peace of mind to those that thought it could, and so they, they used, it, uh, used that as an excuse. The end justifies the means and all of that. But he was a quack. It later on was used to describe a person who was a politician who would make great promises to his constituents, promises that he had no power to, to, to uh, produce. Aristotle said that it's a man who pretends to be credible or, or, or pretends to credible qualities that he does not possess or possesses in a lesser degree than he makes out. Cyrus, the Persian king, uh, mentioned this trait or the equivalent of it in the, uh, uh, the uh, Chaldean language, uh, the equivalent of this, he said that there are those who pretend to be richer than they are, or braver than they are, and those who promise to do what they cannot do, and they all do it when it's evident that they'll get or make some gain. Great description of that word. Here is the opening paragraph in the San Jose Mercury News story of yesterday concerning Jones. Listen to this. He came here with the razzle-dazzle of a medicine man, an activist who held out the promise of healing the sick, feeding the poor, and changing the face of city politics. He was a charlatan. He was a quack. He couldn't produce those things. Most people haven't mentioned this, but in 1972, some of you may remember, Jim Jones said that he was going to walk on water, remember, on the San Francisco Bay. And you remember that then he claims he got shot in the leg and so he couldn't do his walk. <laughs> That's sure a shame, you know. I would have liked to have seen that myself. <clears throat> Might have saved a lot of people some problem, especially if he got halfway out there and then the Lord let him sink. But uh, in any event, it says in describing one of the meetings in the early days of the People's Temple, Jones was the star of the show, whipping his troops into a happy frenzy once to thundering applause, he resuscitated two parishioners who fell into catonic stiffness in the excitement. He said he had paranormal healing abilities and by 1972 claimed to have raised more than 40 people from the dead. Now, they should have suspected him then. But he made that claim. All right? Next one. 
goes on and on, doesn't it? See how beautifully God had already predicted things like this. But remember, there's going to be other ones. And we need to have our young people informed, and you need to be informed, so you're ready to warn people against this, and the Word of God is the ultimate answer. All right, the word proud. Now, the word proud, hooper, it means above, and phanos means to show or to demonstrate. And so, therefore, it's to show oneself above. It's the idea of haughty arrogance, one who claims that he's above others. Hitler had this quality, obviously. In fact, he had a lot of these qualities if you study the history. But he's so far back, you see, people have kind of forgotten about him. This is current and up to date. If I'd said I was going to show how Hitler uh, filled these characteristics, nobody would have shown up tonight, see? But uh, because it was Jim Jones and so fresh in our mind, we're all ready for it. But the same thing was true of Hitler. And you see, the thing that has come out now is that whereas Jones was claiming that he was for the poor and for the blacks and all of the rest, actually... Now it's come clear that he really had a superiority attitude, just like Hitler. He was talking against fascism, and yet at the same time, the man was a, the man was a fascist. It's tragic, but it's true. Jones used to make people grovel before him. He claimed to be the only perfect heterosexual and made others admit to homosexuality, would not allow relations between husband and wife, but carried on affairs many of them, as it's turned out. There's a difference between the Alizon and the Hooperphanos, the braggart and the arrogant. The braggart is a swaggering creature who shouts his claims to the four winds of heaven, tries to boast and bluster his way into power and eminence. No one can possibly mistake him or fail to see him. You know that when he starts claiming he raises 40 people from the dead. But the sin of the man who is arrogant is in his heart. He might even seem to be humble, He might even seem to be quiet and inoffensive, but in his secret heart there is contempt for everything else. He nourishes an all-consuming, all-pervading pride. In his heart there's a little altar where he bows before himself, and in his eyes there's there's something which, uh, which there's something in him which looks at all men with a sort of a silent contempt. As you read the newspaper accounts, you see that Jones degraded his followers, made great boast of his sexual conquests, made people admit that they were inferior to him, and uh, that's, of course, the reason they used some of the titles they did in calling him God, and so on. Blasphemos. Blasphemos, from the word blapto, which means to inspire, and feme, which means speech. It means to insult, to defame. It's not just blasphemy against God, but that's, of course, included. It's any kind of slander, any kind of speaking against others. Jones spoke against virtually everyone who opposed him. Former temple members spoke of hours of haranguing against government officials that he felt were enemies. He spoke of killing all of his enemies. He talked of a hit list and, of course, said uh, very, very cruel things, particularly about those individuals that were defectors. He was known as the nastiest boy in the neighborhood as a boy as well, a boy with a foul mouth. Disobedient to parents. Now, the word apethes is actually unwillingness to be persuaded. We know that Jim Jones had a, a tragic home life. It really wasn't much of a home life at all if you've read the stories. And uh, his, his father spent most of his, most of his time in a bar. and It just shows again the sins of the fathers are visited on the third and fourth generation. 
And so therefore, uh, you can be sure that some of the natural consequences of poor parents uh, came into this. But nevertheless, he himself lost respect for any kind of authority at a very early age. And uh, he, is, he is, uh, was an individual who had, had uh, great disrespect, particularly for adults. And one of his apparent goals in the Jonestown incident was to break down the family structure. One article from the newspaper said, Jimmy was a loner. Many residents said, some say he was downright nasty. He was a strange one, said Mrs. Guy Prince, who wouldn't let her children play with Jimmy because of his wicked mouth. George Southworth, a Lynn native, now teaching in the University of Miami, remembered that the boy would greet him with the words, and then it gives the swear words that he used, which I wouldn't let pass my lips. Also, he not only was apathes, disobedient to parents, but also unthankful. The word akaristos is a word that means thankless. And, of course, is a, is a tragic, tragic thing. Incidentally, these same characteristics, many of them, are also found in the first chapter of Romans. And in Romans 1, though, it is characteristics of pagans. But in 2 Timothy 3, it is the characteristic of, the, of those that are in the professing church. He would say, how could it be? Uh, you might expect this in darkest Africa, but how could it be in the church, the professing church? church will be the center of apostasy in the last days. The church that throws the Bible out, throws God out, decides that Jesus Christ is not virgin born, decides that we no longer believe in the old myths and old morality of the scripture and all of the rest, and we begin tossing scripture out or reinterpreting it to our own ends, then that becomes apostasy, and the church is going to have the name church It's going to have the reverend. It's going to have all the rest of the things that people today think of as a church. But as the text is here is going to say a little later, it's a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And this was characteristic of this man. He was unthankful. We know that because he had no gracious attitude toward our country at all. All that our country did in the way of even allowing him to exist under these circumstances, the freedoms that we have, he never could have done what he did in Soviet Russia. He may think he could, but he couldn't. But get this, he left the USA because the CIA and the FBI were out to get him, he said. And San Jose Mercury News said today that he promised his people a promised land and spurned the U.S. as a land of opportunity. He played on the lack of appreciation and gratitude the people had for uh, our great, uh, the lack of appreciation and gratitude the people had for our great land. And so therefore, here is a man who is, who is unthankful along with everything else. And right after Thanksgiving, you know, uh, we ought to be thinking in terms of what unthankfulness can ultimately bring in the way of depravity. Then there's the word anasios from the word hasias, which is sacred, holy, that which is uh, profane, uh, that which is not profane, and the negative with the uh, priv- privative before it, the alpha, indicates it's negative, so therefore it is that which is not sacred, or that which is profane, that which is, is common. And uh, one of the things that you find that's characteristic of a person who is an asias is a person who refuses the common decencies of life. The word doesn't mean that men are necessarily going to go against written law. 
that is the law of the land, though it can include that, the, the word anomia is the word that is used in regard to the law of the land and breaking that. But it means that this individual offends against unwritten laws, unwritten laws which are the part and parcel of the very essence of life. To the Greek, anosios was something like refusing to bury the dead or uh, the, the, a brother marrying a sister uh, or seeking pleasure, pleasure in an abnormal way such as homosexuality. And of course we know that Jones had many adulterous relationships as well as homosexual relationships which according to his 19-year-old son deeply grieved his wife. Then we have a word that I think is one of the most characteristic of this whole thing and that is without natural affection. Ostorgos is the word. It comes from the, the root stego, which means to cover. It's the protective kind of love. You know how a hen will sit on her chicks in a fire and give her life for her chicks? That is the concept of storgos. But this is without storgos, without that natural protecting kind of an attitude. When people become so depraved that they can kill someone that they know not accidentally and not in warfare, but kill them and, and cold-blooded murder, such as happened in San Francisco, then that is because they have become so depraved they no longer have the natural instinct of loving those with whom they have a relationship. This storge love is the binding factor by which any natural or social unit is held together, both in the physical uh, uh, human world and in the animal world. It's an instinctive kind of love. It's the kind of love you have by instinct. It's the kind of love that a mother who, who maybe didn't, didn't really want that baby, yet when the baby comes, she cuddles it in her arms and protects it with everything she has simply because there's an instinct. And when she loses that instinct, then she, of course, would have the baby aborted. And we are living in a society today without natural affection. And it's very difficult for me to see a whole lot of difference between those people feeding their kids strychnine in Jonestown and the millions of abortions that are being performed every year in this country. Because you see, once you take away the natural instinct, which you mothers would know better than a father, but that instinct that you have when you begin to feel that child within you and you realize that that child is yours and you want to protect the child and you do everything you can to protect the child. And yet we are creating a society of people who don't care. And it's a logical step for people who've had abortions to be able to kill their children. You know, it's an amazing thing. They said if we only allow, if we only allow people to have abortions, we will reduce child beating. Because people won't have any unwanted children. Guess what? Read your statistics. Child beatings have increased at a rapid rate. Why? Because they've lost respect for human life. Child beatings were a problem before. It's epidemic proportions now. Not with unwanted children, but with wanted children. Because there's no longer a respect for life. Because people are without natural affection. And it is a signal of the last days. So you can expect it. Benjamin Warfield speaks of this quality as that which designates the quiet and abiding feelings within us, which resting on an object as near to us, recognizes that we are closely bound up with it and takes satisfaction in its uh, recognition. It's a love 
that is really the natural movement of the soul, something like a gravitation or some other force of blind nature. It's not something you work up or hope you have or anything like that. It's something that's built into you just because, if nothing else, you're part of the animal world, in that, using that term loosely. You have an instinct. And mothers, incidentally, have a mothering instinct, and that's been largely repelled today as well. The absence of natural affection would allow people to destroy their own children. You know the history. Jones was such a man. On one occasion, a four-year-old boy on a camping trip with Jones and other temple members was forced by Jones to eat more dinner than the boy could hold. When he threw up, Jones forced the boy to eat his vomit six consecutive times, claiming that this would teach the boy discipline. Can you imagine a parent standing by and letting that happen? Without natural affection. I would go on and on on that one. I won't do it. Next one. Ospondos. Truce breakers. Now the root here is sponde, which is a libation. It's a kind of a sacrifice that was used to seal a pact or an agreement. The idea here of being without, without a libation is simply the refusal to enter into a treaty. It would be an implacable person, one who will not covenant with others for the common good, one who refuses to put aside his hatred and his enmity and listen to terms of accommodation, one who refuses reconciliation. It really involves two things. First of all, the person becomes so bitter and unappeasable in his hatred that he will never, never, never come to terms with a man with whom he's quarreled. Secondly, a man is so dishonorable that he breaks and disregards the terms of agreements that he has made. Now we may note that according to a friend and fellow minister, Jones could not accept criticism. Once a person criticized him, he was on his blacklist. It was not possible to be at peace with Jones, one person said. He used to threaten the government of Guyana, saying that the cult would pull a mass suicide, leaving them 1,100 dead bodies. As well, a petition pledging loyalty to Jones was found, signed by 600 to 700 people. Yet Jones put these people, who pledged their life to him, he put them to death. As a surviving eyewitness, Mark Lane claims, they were given the choice of suicide or being gunned down by guards. Truce breaker. False accusers. Here's the word that you will recognize as being one of the words used to describe Satan, one of the names for Satan. Diabolos. Dia, through, uh, the idea of to, to cast, uh, uh, to throw by, or cast slander with the word balo, to throw by, literally. And uh, the accuser of the brethren is Satan. It's the malicious retelling of either the truth or untruth with evil intent. That's what it is. Now this fits remarkably well with the fact that Jones seemed to enjoy thoroughly hearing people incriminate themselves. Ex-member Wanda Johnson says that he forced her and her husband to sign confessions claiming that they were child molesters and unfit to raise their son Jimmy, whom Jones held in Guyana. They, they forced this signing by threatening to murder the family. Other former followers, Mike Cartmel and Gerald Parks, say that Jones made all members admit they were homosexuals, which Jones had branded a crime, though he himself was one. Try to figure that one out. Cartmel says he made himself the only legitimate object of sexual desire. Also, Jones spoke of an imminent anti-black race war as well as a fascist takeover of the United States. Then, the twelfth thing is the word akrates, incontinent, the King James has it. The idea is without control, 
Krates is power or control, and with the the uh, awe in front of it, it would be the the uh, not having any control, no self-control. It's translated in Matthew 23, excess. Note that uh, Jones once boasted of in, engaging in sexual activity for six hours straight. He had an un- uncontrolled sexual lust. He had an uncontrollable temper. You couldn't approach him without hostility. He was, indeed, without control. Then the word fierce. Now, this is a word that is very, very characteristic of this man. It is actually is usually used for wild beasts. It means not to be tame. It means to be savage. It's the idea of the cruelty of a wild animal. It's savagery without sensitivity or sympathy. It's one of his outstanding characteristics. He became notorious for giving his followers public beatings. Prior to the suicide, one survivor quotes him as saying, Kill as many invaders as you can, then slit your own throats. The followers took after Jones for that airstrip ambush. Robert Flick of NBC recalls, as they, those that shot Ryan and so on, fell, people walked over and shot them point blank in the face. Former member Jenny Mills says that the sadistic beatings were ordered by Jones, and she says that he began to take delight in the beatings. It says that the more people who came in, the longer the meetings got, even while they were still in San Francisco. Uh, George McCowan said this, Sometimes you'd stay there all night, and he wouldn't let anyone go to the bathroom. According to her, a common method of discipline, this is uh, Miss uh, Stone again, according to her, a common method of discipline was beatings carried out before the assembled membership. Microphones were placed near the mouths of those who were beaten so that the intensity of their screams would not be lost to the audience, she wrote. Tragic, terrible thing. Despisers of those with that which is good. Now, again, it's the negative with phileo and the word agathos, which is good in character and beneficial in effect, that which is honorable, that which is true. It's a word that that is, is very, very important in the New Testament and has to do with the quality of that which is divinely good. And, of course, Jones substituted everything. In his religious form, even the suicide ritual was a mockery of the communion table. And the, the various things that were done were all done, but they were all substitutes. They were all counterfeits. He was aware of all of the things that took place in the church of Jesus Christ. He had been to churches which apparently had preached the gospel. I have no reason to believe that he was ever a believer. There's nothing to indicate that. But at the same time, this man had the... the, the, the the, uh, in his own experience, came to the place where his mental palate lost its taste for that which was good. And you see the infiltration. He threw the Bible out and replaced it with Karl Marx. He threw the communion table out and, and established a rite that was basically worship of him. He substituted the counterfeit for the real and had the people fooled into thinking they were still going to church. The whole thrust of Jones's training of his followers was a violent opposition to non-members. Former members say that Jones drilled them in suicides and make-believe ambushes. Next word is traitor. A betrayer. A treacherous person. Prodates. It's one who informs on another in order to get pay. Or 
to even to uh, even an old score to get back at the person or to win some kind of a cheap reward. The newspaper said that one way Jones gained power was to use his inner group of 150 who were called his angels. Interesting, isn't it? He had his angels too. Angels of darkness, mind you. These people would seduce city officials and then tape with cameras their adulterous activity and blackmail them. The only ironic thing is that Jones recruited his angels by forcing them to sign incriminating papers, which he used to blackmail them into loyalty. It's a wicked chain. The next word is heady. All of these, we could take a long time to study them, but the word propetes means reckless. It means swept by passion and impulse. It means to, to have desire to such an extent that you lose your stability to think wisely or sensibly. The word pro, of course, means before. The word pipto means to fall. It means to fall for before. And uh, we hardly have to mention this because the whole matter of the killing of Ryan and, uh, and the suicides and all of the rest were a rash act, an impulsive act of a, of a man who had become heady, high-minded. Well, we went the full circle. We started with lovers of self. We come right back again to the idea of loving self or the idea of, uh, of, of making a, a, uh, a proud sort of, uh, sort of situation. And uh, here the word means to raise a smoke or to wrap in a mist, inflated with conceit, pride again. And uh, it's the idea of being swell-headed, as we would use in our vernacular infatuated with a sense of one's own importance. The very name Jonestown, of course, indicates that this was the case with him. Jones made himself superior to others. Former angel claims that Jones would not allow husbands and wives to make love, for Jones believed that, that uh, uh, the only one who could, uh, could uh, that he was the only one who could love the same sex. Jones himself, or the opposite sex, excuse me. Jones himself, however, was the exception to everyone else. He was the only one who, could, who was the perfect lover. Ed Westcott, a ham operator, says that he used to hear radio messages from Guyana to San Francisco in, uh, in which it was always maintained that nothing could be done without checking with Jones. He was wrapped in a mist. He was swell-headed. He was proud. And then it says that they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now the word edones is the word from which we get our word hedonistic. We live, people say, in a hedonistic society. Some even brag about it. But it's the idea of a fondness of that kind of lust, centering your life around that kind of lust. And uh, the natural and instinctive desire is for that which gratifies rather than being for God. Again, the whole thing about the sex, we've said enough about that. Did you know that, that very early in coming into San Francisco that Jones was arrested at a pornographic movie house and charged with making lewd advances to an undercover officer. The charges were later on dropped. And it was after that happened that he was made an official in city government. Can you believe that? Reporter Ron Javers, survivor of the trauma, recalls talking with Jones at the Guiana Temple. He kept taking pills until he seemed dazed by them. He was obviously on drugs and just a part of his hedonistic lifestyle. You could go on and on. All you have to do is read the newspapers about all of the, all of the sex things that took place. Then it says this, and I'll watch your text. Having a form, 
The word there is an outward semblance, an outward external pattern of religious life without the reality of Christ. He had a form of godliness, but denied or refused or rejected that which had been offered, denied the very power thereof. And it's the perfect tense there. We haven't said much about tenses tonight. A lot of them are important here, but this one especially is because the the perfect tense indicates that he had denied in the past with present continuing results. Somewhere in his life he came to the point in all of his religiosity where he denied the truth. When he denied the truth, he was a perfect target for believing the lie. Lord Melbourne of English Parliament, after hearing an evangelistic sermon, made this statement. We have come to a pretty pass if religion is going to be allowed to interfere with our ordinary daily lives. And apparently that's what Jim Jones thought as well. The scripture tells us what to do with such a person. From such, turn away. But literally in the, in the Greek, it says, repel them from you. You should have nothing to do with a person that lines up with these characteristics. And Jones lined up with every single one. And there isn't a Christian in the world that should ever be taken in by this man or anyone like him. And yet, you know, a lot of people that uh, were at least professing Christians were fooled by this man, even though so many of these things were evident. You're not to allow such a person to influence your life in the least Jones had a very polished form of godliness. He appealed to something in man that wanted to stop class distinction, the oppression of the poor, and prove that people could live together regardless of background. It sounded so good. Guess what? It's going to be true. That's what heaven's going to be like. But he cannot produce heaven. Neither can I. Only God can do that. Jones himself built his lower class followers out of money, while at the same time he was talking against the oppression of the poor. He held people against their will while saying that all could live together in peace and harmony. It's obvious that he was a deceiver. Jones made his pious statements as this, there is great dignity in dying, you must die with dignity. Then he would say that he had a rare form of diabetes, which would turn any normal man into a killer, but he overcame it with his basically good nature. If you could be as good as me, then you could overcome your problems too. A 1977 statement released from the People's Temple saying this, Our program in Guyana is everything that has been represented to be, both as an agricultural mission and as a model cooperative community that has successfully rehabilitated many young people from lives filled with serious problems. All of these individuals enjoy a state of health, well-being, happiness that they would never have had the chance to experience in their former environments. He no doubt had the pretense, but in 1967 he denied the power thereof when he took his Bible, threw it down, and told his congregation to throw the Bible out. He began to read Karl Marx. Now, John Dietrich and I were talking this morning, or as we were going to lunch today, He was mentioning he was reading in Matthew chapter 7. And there it says, by your fruits you shall know them. Remember that text? Christ says you'll be able to recognize the false prophets because by their fruits you'll know them. And then the text goes on 
And it talks about the fact that they will say, Lord, Lord, we've cast out demons in your name. We've done all kinds of marvelous things in your name. And Christ is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because the test, and get this now, the test of whether a person is a true prophet or not is not how many miracles he can do. Not how many people he can heal. Not how many languages he speaks in. Not how many prophecies he gives. Not any of those things. The test of whether he's real is given in the next verse. Because it says there in Matthew chapter 7 that he is likened, he that hears these sayings of mine and does them is likened to a man that builds his house on a rock. And he that hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do them is like to a man that builds his house on the sand. The test of reality, the fruit by which you know them, is indeed the response that a person has to this book, to nothing else. And he threw it out and said there was no need of it. Now we're just going to skim the rest here. Verse 6 gives us a further warning. For of this sort are they who creep into houses. That means to slip in by insinuation. And to lead captive. That's to bring under the influence or control, to take prisoner. The loss of freedom is involved. To lead captive, and those people in Jonestown were captives. To lead captive, notice, silly women. Now that was a term that referred to both men and women alike. It was used as a deriding term for someone who was gullible. He was called a silly woman, even a man. Anybody, not because we're we're not deriding you poor gals, But the thing is that this was the concept about which this was written. It was an idiom of the day. And therefore, even though it can refer to women, it can also refer to anyone who is unstable. That's what the term really means. It says they're laden with sins. They, of course, have guilt. They'd like to get rid of their guilt. The exploitation here of the tender conscience, plying the guilt of people, A sin-laden conscience, someone said, is easy prey to those who promise an easy way out. The result is, they are led away into diverse lusts. Now remember, Jones was not only deceived, but he was an imposter. He called himself the prophet of God. He called himself father. One follower said that he was a reincarnation of Lenin and going to bring communism to America. We could also cite two examples of actual women who were led astray by him. One, Opal Freestone. She remained with him even though he threw out the Bible. She said, I really believed in Jim Jones. Wanda Johnson was captive indeed because Jones had threatened her family. And on and on and on the list goes. Notice the condition of these women in verse 7. Ever learning, and they were, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's because there's no truth there. And the word knowledge is epinosis, which is precise truth or truth applied in the life. The, The thing they were looking for they could never find. Then in verse 8, there is the concept of the counterfeit. Jannes and Jambres, the two magicians who tried to confront uh, uh, Moses in the time of the Exodus. And what three things did they do? They resisted or stood against the truth. They had corrupt minds. They were reprobate, which means they weren't approved. They could not stand the test of heat, in other words. It was after the arrival in Ukiah that Jones began to show what he's been termed by the newspapers as a turning away from straight biblical interpretation. Verse 9 
turns that corner and tells us what's going to happen. They shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest to all men, as theirs also was. Isn't that true? It's exactly what happened with Jim Jones. The veneer was taken off. He did his thing. He's gone. And now people remember the evil deed. He's been exposed. But he's not the last in the succession. Because there's a whole bunch of others that are still under, under wraps. Satan hasn't exposed them yet. They're still leading people astray and away from the word of God. Some of them stand in pulpits every Sunday. And so therefore, they'll be exposed. But Paul then gives his own example. And oh, I wish we had time. That's the positive thing that I wish we could take time to see. Just notice it. Verse 10. But thou, thou of all people, emphasis in the Greek. Thou of all people, Timothy, hast fully known, which means basically to follow after my, what? Doctrine? That's the teaching, didaskalos. My manner of life, the conduct that goes along in keeping with the doctrine. My purpose, which of course was to do the will of God. My faith or my faithfulness, which had to do with the the whole concept of Paul walking by faith and living faithfully before God. My long-suffering, true long-suffering patience, which Jim Jones didn't have. Love, agape love. My patience. My persecution. My afflictions. And then he names some places where it was very true. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. What persecutions I endured but out of them. All the Lord delivered me. Here's a man of great experience. He'd gone through a lot. He says in the book of Galatians, I bear in my body the brands of Jesus Christ. He had suffered. Look at the word he has for us. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Remember. We are not the popular majority. We will always be in a minority, and as long as evil is rampant in the world previous to the coming of Jesus Christ, we will always have a degree of misunderstanding and persecution because of the message we stand for. The world doesn't like it. The homosexual doesn't like the fact that the Bible says it's wrong. The adulterer doesn't like the fact that the Bible says it's wrong. Those that like to steal don't like the fact that the Bible says it's wrong. Those that like to, to uh, just not go to receive the teaching of the Word of God anywhere at all, the Bible says it's wrong. They don't like that. You go on and on and on and on and on. Things that people don't like. Never did like the Bible. From that standpoint, it's always telling me where I'm wrong. But praise God for this book. Because it tells me where I'm wrong so that I can be made right. And then it goes on. And it talks about the fact that here's what we can expect. Evil men and seducers shall, here's a promise now, become worse and worse. You like that? Can you imagine anything worse? God says it's going to happen. They're going to get worse. All right? And they're going to be deceiving And they themselves are going to be deceived. Count on it. But, turn the corner again. And let's just follow through. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. You have known the sacred scriptures, literally. 
which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What does the Word of God do us? Do for us, it teaches us concerning the only way there is for a lost and sinful world, the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. The scriptures have given us the way of salvation. The truth of God is that there is salvation in Christ. Well, we ought to proclaim it from the mountaintops. Tell the world about it. Because listen, this whole bunch... Of 910 people were looking for reality. And they followed a lie. And we have that reality in Jesus Christ. We better hang on to it and we better proclaim it. It says that you've known the Holy Scripture make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Then here's the key. All Scripture is given by inspiration or literally God breathed and is profitable. How? For doctrine. Teaching. Doctrine. God makes it plain. He tells us His divine standard. For reproof. We find out that God's standard is different than our standard. That's the reproof. We're guilty. We're short of His standard. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Third. Correction. You'd better change or else. That's the message. And it tells us how to deal with the fact that we come short of the glory of God. That is correction. And then finally, instruction. You learn by doing. It's a matter of structured training that is built in. The Word of God tells you, this is the way, walk ye in it. It tells you where to go. It tells you what to, what to do. It even tells you how to think. Bring every thought into captivity the obedience of Christ. Casting down imaginations and every evil thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. It tells us whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good reports. Concentrate your attention on these things. It tells you how to think. It tells you how to act. Walk not as other Gentiles walk. Now, on and on. I could go. I feel a sermon coming on here. With a purpose that. Here is the purpose now. With a purpose that. The man of God. And God needs men and women of God today. In an age like this. That the man of God may be perfect. That is complete. Fully outfitted. Thoroughly equipped. Unto all good works. God has given us. The word of God. As the solution. To an age of corruptness. He doesn't say run away from it. Oh, I'll tell you, I've had more fun going into stores and things in these days, you know, because everybody's talking and everybody's asking questions. I walked into the store today, and the guy said, hey, what did you, th- you know what he said? He says, you've got quite a following down there at Valley Church. I said, don't you dare say I have a following. <laughs> I do not have a following. We teach our people to follow Jesus Christ. They'd better not follow me. And I said... And then I went into the, you know, man, I'll tell you, they got a witness. They asked for it. (laughs) Sunday night, a bunch of you stood up saying you wanted to be a witness for Christ this week. And one of our men came up to me this afternoon and he said, Pastor, I told you that's what I'd try to do. I saw a man out here and started talking to him and had the privilege of leading him to the Lord today. Isn't that great? I didn't have the privilege of leading these guys to the Lord, but I had a chance to talk about Jesus Christ in a way they'd never heard before. 
And I want to tell you something, my friends. These are some of the most exciting days of all. Don't you forget it. Perilous times, difficult, tough to deal with. Sometimes it's going to be tough to know just exactly how to move through some of the, some of the, the, the trash that has been poured out upon us. See, the news media doesn't have the picture. But you know the thing is, it's so interesting, the news media has an answer for everything. Until a week ago. Suddenly, they couldn't say it. They, they were saying, what have we become? Ooh, I wish they would have asked me that face to face. See what I mean? I mean, face it. Right now, people are saying, our pat answers don't work. Our answers do. We've got the greatest message in the world. In the greatest times in the world. I wouldn't want to be alive at any other time in all of history. This is the greatest time in the world to live. You know why I say that? Because God placed me here this time. That's where he wants me. And I want to be right in the center of his will, being a witness for Jesus Christ, because Christ is the answer. You know, it's funny. We used to have a little thing around school when people would use some of these cliches we Christians use. They would say, and we'd say, Christ is the answer. They'd say, what's the question? But you know, you don't have to say that today. The question they know. And Christ is the answer. And I believe with all my heart that, you know, I've just given you a skim. Can you see something, friends? Can you see how important it is for you to know your Bibles? You know, I knock myself out to study and be prepared so I can teach you. But what I want to do is teach you so that you can teach others to teach others to teach others the things that that God gives to me and gives to you, then that we can pass on and multiply in these days. We ought to be busy. We ought to realize that this place is not simply a church in the churchy sense. It is a school. It is a training ground to send forth missionaries out into this community to penetrate the community, not to get people to follow a man, God forbid, but to follow Jesus Christ who is not a man. He is the Son of God with power, revealed as such because he raised himself from the dead. To follow Christ. That's the key and that's the answer. We've got multitudes of people perishing Multitudes of people that today are in the valley of decision, but unable, unable to turn to the truth because they have been fed a lie by people who have been vocal, while the Christians have been silent. The solution is there. And I think that in a small way, tonight, you began to realize, I hope you have, the importance of knowing this book from cover to cover, getting everything we can, any way we can, by the grace of God, so that we have an accurate message to give out to those that are lost. Lest we be deceived, lest our children be deceived, because face it, the techniques of Jim Jones are being used by the Moonies, by the children of God, and by half a dozen other cults, the way Victor Horwell's cult, and uh, the local church, which is Witness Lee's cult, and on and on and on and on the list grows. These same techniques are being used by them that were used by Jim Jones. And your young people can fall prey to that if they're not trained in the Word of God. And the church doesn't have enough time to do it. You've got to do it in your homes. Which means you have to know the Word of God in order to forestall this. So first of all, we need to know the Word of God so that we're protected against this. And secondly, we need to know it 
so that we can share it with a world that doesn't know it. So let's be in training in these days to the glory of God. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we have raced through in a very short time, touched one of the most current, up-to-date descriptions of our day this past couple of weeks that we could find anywhere. We thank you for your word. We pray that you will give us a new dedication to know this word and to speak it clearly. We pray that the word of God will become to us the most important book in the world and that Jesus Christ himself will become the most important person in the world and that we will not be duped by all kinds of of false concepts, but rather that we will be those who know the word and are able to proclaim it. We just pray, Father, that you will undertake for us as we go our ways. Help us go on our way rejoicing, but at the same time with a serious intent and purpose to share a message with the world. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.